So with Siata Dishmaya, we're going to open up here the lessons in which, what are we davening? What do we daven every day? And so, um, Baruch Hashem, um, I had the ability and the pleasure to sit down and discuss this with um, Hagayon uh, Hakam Rabbi Yaakov Hillel, who's a, a world-renowned uh, rabbi and um, and Mekubal as well. He lives here in Jerusalem, and he is a Rosh Hashiva of Ahava Shalom. And so he gave us the outline, basically, for women. For women, because there's structured two prayers, and women have an obligation of also davening, and also there are certain parts of the davening that a woman is required to to do. And so... On the Ashkenazi, with Ashkenazi uh, Minhagim, the women basically daven the three times or three three um, uh, davening per day, which is Sachsharit, Mincha, and Arbit. And by the Sephardi Minhag, is the women are required to daven one. And they could choose whether they want to daven Shacharit, they want to daven Mincha, or they want to daven Arbit. And so either which way, in whichever which way that, that you're holding, Okay, in each of the Shacharit, Mincha, and Arbit, this, uh, these are the sections in which a woman is required uh, to daven, in these sections. And, and uh, the other sections really belong to men, or they pertain to men. But these are the ones that are more they're per- pertinent for women. So in, in these lessons, just so that you know, what we're going to do is it's best for you to either take out your Sidor and follow me with your Sidor, and make notes or highlights or just put little sticky notes so that you have captured the the, the main point. So the main point here is to have kavana. The main point here is to understand when you dive in what you're saying and why you're saying what you're saying and have some background to why it's so. And so this is why we're doing this. This is why we're having these lessons is to open up. And so when we dive into our king, to our God, we're not, we're not doing lip service. We're not robotic. In terms of davening and saying words that we don't understand what we're saying. We're going to stand in front of the king and we're going to connect with him. And that means that Hashem wants our hearts. He doesn't want our intellect. He doesn't need roboticness. He wants us to connect to him in a real way. And he wants our hearts. Which means that we have to feel our davening. We can't just daven just because to daven. And sure, a lot of people robotically do that. And hopefully one day they'll come to feeling what they're saying. But at the end of the day, it's all about feeling. It's all about connecting to your God. And when you dive into him, you should know. You should know what you're saying and why you're saying that. It should come with feeling. And and because that's what Hashem is looking for. That's exactly what Hashem wants, our connection to him to be real. And so with that being said, maybe open your door best. And then we'll go through. I'm not going to say the words here in davening because I, I I don't want to have you know Hashem Shalom say one of the you know Hashem's name and say it in vain. Okay, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through. We're going to go through everything that we need to daven for women, and then we're going to open up the Shema, and then we're going to go section by section of the Shema so you can get an understanding of why it's so and why we say what we say and what the kavana is. All right, so now just to get started to give you structure, um, whether it's in Shacharit and whether it's in Mincha or Arbit, okay, we're going to Daven Baruch Shamar, uh, Vehaya Olam, 
that is for women, is for us to daven. And then we're going to daven Ashrei, Yosheve Betecha. We're going to daven that. And then, Bezat Hashem, we have time. Okay, uh, it's optional, but it's re- it's it's recommended that we should daven also Ve'barek David et Hashem. Okay, and we should daven that. And then we're gonna daven. Follow me here. I'm hope you're following me in your sidur and marking this off. Yishtabeak, Yishtabeak simcha la ad malkeinu. So we're gonna daven that. And then we're gonna go into the Shema. We're gonna daven. From the Shema, the Yoteor, which is Baruchat uh, Hashem Elokeinu Melek Olam Yoseor, we're gonna daven that, and then we're gonna go into the Shema. And I know there's some sections here that if you're davening with a minyan, then you can do, and if you're not, then you're you shouldn't do. Okay, and so then you're gonna go to the actual Shema, and then you're going to go into Amida, the Amida prayer. Or you're standing before the king. And so you're going to wrap up with the Aleinu. Aleinu Lishabeach. All right. And then if at nighttime, uh, we're all required to do the Kriya Shema. So uh, the Kriya Shema is what we're going to daven. Okay. At nighttime before you go to sleep. All right. So now let's open up the, the tefillah here. And let's talk about the Shema. Now let's talk about Shema Israel. And so, what's the Shema? The words of Shema Israel, which means listen closely Israel, are likely the best known words of prayer to Jews across the world. And they are a call to action for every Jew to pledge his total allegiance to the one and only God and be subservient to his will. The Shema is one of the first prayers a child learns. And one of the last that a Jew recites before departing from this world. So why is the Shema, Shema so singularly important in the life of a Jew? The Shema expresses our total commitment, body and soul, to our Creator. And many people tend to think that Judaism is primarily a spiritual faith, reasoning that our mitzvot should be the province of our heart, mind and souls. If so, only those conceptual mitzvots that are directed to the mind and spirit should be mandated. So opposing this view, Abu Draham declares that the Shema is teaching us about the necessary physical components of our faith. In fact, because we are physical beings, we need to engage in mitzvot that elevate our physical selves to a spiritual level. So, for example, for men, donning tefillin is not just a symbolic physical act. When they put on tefillin on their arm, in effect, they're dedicating all of their activities to God. And when they place a tefillin on their head, they are consecrating their thoughts to God. And it's been said, when you pray, you speak to God. And when you learn Torah, God speaks to you. And so when you're studying Torah, you're not studying a mere Judaic topic. You're learning Torah from the Almighty yourself. He's Almighty Himself you're learning. So when you teach your children Torah, it's a spiritual act in itself. In fact, one of the blessings before studying Torah concludes, who teaches Torah to His people, Israel. So every day God teaches us, each and every one of us, Torah. And every day that we teach our children Torah, we transmit this divine revelation to the next generation. 
So ultimately, the Jewish home is the focus of the family. And traditional Jews, as well as many non-observant Jews, respect the mitzvah of placing a mezuzah on their doorposts. They realize and recognize that this mitzvah symbolizes a Jewish home. It's more than just bricks and mortar. It's, it's more than a beautiful edifice to a house or family. It's a constant reminder to all that there lives a Jewish family sheltered under the wings of the Divine Presence. So now, the key verse of the Shema is most critical. It proclaims the cornerstone of our belief in the oneness and eternity of God and God's attributes of compassion and justice. And the verse ends with God is one. So now, the first passage of Shema and again, I'm not going to say it in Hebrew. I am going to say it in English because I want you to understand what you're saying. And so, Almighty Faithful King, follow along with me in your Siddur. Listen, Israel, my master is our God, our one and only master. Blessed is his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. You shall love my master, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your resources. And those words with, with words which I command you today shall be upon your heart and you shall teach them thoroughly to your children. You shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you travel on the road and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them for a sign on your arm and they shall be an emblem on the center of your head between your eyes. And you shall write them upon the doorpost of your house and upon your gateways. So then here we have the words, the three words, which is, you know, it starts with Aleph Lamed. So it's Almighty Faithful King. So from here, we learn from these three words that our rabbis taught then in the recitation of the three passages of Shema, there's 248 words, which is equivalent to the organs of your body. That's in your body. And so since the portion of Shema that we recite when there is no minion has only 245 words, the Geonim established that the words Almighty Faithful King be added to complete the 248 words that are required. And there are those who propose that the 248 are reached when the Hazan repeats the words, My Master, your God is true. So why mention the 248 limbs of the body before the recitation of the Shema? These limbs represent the physical essence of man. And at this momentous point in our prayers, when we're about to declare that we are and hope to become from God, we acknowledge that we belong totally to God. We truly love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our resources. So therefore, we dedicate every limb that makes our lives possible to His service. So take a look at the first letters of these words, these three words. The first letter of these three words spell Amen. It's the Aleph, the Mem, and the Nun. They spell Amen. Amen means so be it. And we accept this as truth. We are saying that God's existence is true. He's so much part of our lives that we feel his presence. So therefore, these three words complete the prescribed 248. And the Sefer... Hakiarim writes that the three principles of our faith are alluded to in these three words. The first word, the Aleph and the Lamed, represents power. That God is the all-powerful, omnipotent king. And the second word, Melech, refers to God's personal involvement with his people. And the last word, the Nun Aleph, Mem, and, and, and um, 
and uh, uh, Nusufit refers to God's rewarding those who follow him and punishing those who do not. So now, let's go to Shema Israel, which is listen Israel. And what's the importance of starting this prayer with listen? Listen Israel. Why is listening so significant? Listen is a request to pay attention to one of the most essential principles in the entire Torah. Since each word in the Shema is extremely significant, we're asked to pay close attention to them. Listening means much more than just hearing. When you walk into a room, you may hear sounds of people speaking. In fact, you may not be able to avoid hearing those words. So it's involuntary in our, con in our context. Listen closely means to engage yourself. Engage yourself. Since this verse is a basis for our faith, listen means that we are accepting and committing ourselves to its teachings. Interestingly enough, the second passage of Shema begins with, if you indeed listen to my commandments, which means accept my commandments, observe them. So the two names of God, compassion and justice. My master is our God. And so when God created the world, he expected the highest standards of man and determined that ideally he would be judged by the strict measure of justice. And this standard of justice is reflected in God's very name, uh, Elohim, which recognizes God as the judge of the world. So in fact, the very first instance when God's name appears in the Torah is in the beginning. And I'm not saying the name correctly. Elohim created the, he the heavens and earth. Yet man could not live up to these standards. So God merged divine compassion with divine justice. So the name of God that represents divine compassion is God's four-letter name, which is the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. And abbreviated, it's the Yud and the Yud. So since both of these attributes are vital to our relationship to God and our total allegiance to his majesty, we proclaim his name in the very first verse of the Shema. And so in Jewish thought, we find a delicate balance between the attributes of justice and compassion. So justice is vital to keeping the letter of the law according to the Torah, which creates boundaries and gives direction to human endeavors. And compassion represents God's spiritual love needed to counterbalance the severity of justice and make Teshuvah, repentance, possible. So when we talk about the oneness of God and His virtues of justice and compassion, we might think of each of them as distant and separate. In reality, they're one. So when we see God exercising His judgment upon an individual who appears to be a good person, it may seem to us that God's actions are unfair. So the stricken person cries out, what did I do to deserve this? Why did this happen to me? And we might conclude that God's attribute of compassion is not present in truth, though God's compassion may very well be a major factor in these, in these happenings. We'll, we who live only in the here and now cannot fully evaluate what's happening behind the scenes. We cannot really know how God is working. It's important to know that even when justice seems to be inflicting suffering, Compassion has been a part of that decision. And so the delicate balance between compassion and justice appears in our days of awe services. In our magzor, we recite prayers that hold us strictly accountable for our actions. And yet we petition for God's compassion and love for us. And all believe that he is difficult to anger, who is merciful, and his compassion precedes his anger. 
So though we use these terms to describe God in truth, he does not have any emotions. Only mortals react with compassion and anger. These expressions are for our benefit and to aid our comprehension of God. And the words teach us, among other things, that we too must restrain our anger when upset and respond with compassion and understanding. And it is, it is your way, our God, to slow, to slow your anger against the wicked and the good, and that is your praise. So here we find the expression that God is slow to anger. And what does that really mean? The fact that God might be upset with us at a particular moment doesn't mean that he will punish us immediately, but rather he will postpone, slow his anger to a later date. In the meantime, he provides us with an opportunity to repent so he may not have to punish us at all. So compassion is in many ways the strongest attribute of God in his relationship with man. If it were not for this dimension of God, then the human race would not survive. It's only because of God's compassion that we have the opportunity to live another day and renew our relationship with him. And this immense attribute is highlighted in the Talmudic passage where Rabbi Yohanan described Moshe's monumental encounter with God. The Holy One, blessed be he, wrapped himself in a talus like the prayer leader and showed Moshe the order of prayer. God said to him, whenever Israel sins, let them perform this order and I shall forgive them. And to this very day, we recite this prayer known as the 13 attributes of mercy. And above all, God loves us as a nation and cherishes every Jewish soul. The Jews who returned home after the destruction of the first holy temple had married Gentile women and brazenly violated the laws of the Torah. So when Ezra and Nehemiah admonished them, they were most despondent. And on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, Ezra read the Torah and the people wept. But Nehemiah, accompanied by other leaders, gave them hope. This day is holy to your God. Neither mourn nor weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go, eat rich, eat rich foods and drink sweet drinks, and send portions of food to whoever has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to God, and do not be sad, for the joy of God is your strength. So now as then, God wants us to live and feel confident and his judgment for a good verdict. He wants us to rejoice with him even in the days of judgment. And oneness, oneness, what do we mean when we declare that God is the one and only? In the era of our forefather Abraham, there were those who believed that you needed an idol for every occasion. So according to the Rambam, originally people did not believe that the idols were gods. Rather, they needed a physical object to relate to their deity. And eventually they forgot about the symbolic connection and started worshipping the idol itself. And Abraham believed and taught monothe monotheism to the world. The faith he thought he taught is that God is the source of all power in this world, the source of all existence. So everything in this world was created by the one and only God. This is why the beginning of the Torah describes God as the creator of everything. At the splitting of the Red Sea, the Red Sea after the exodus from Egypt, the Jewish nation was in awe of God's miraculous powers and they cried out, Who is like you among the powers? And the Hebrew word for power in this context is the same as heavenly power, which means that all the powers in this world emanate from God. Whatever the power source may be, solar energy, nuclear energy, or fossil fuels, God made them and is their source. So when we read the praise, Who is like you among the powers? We're not equating God with other powers. 
We're declaring that God reigns supreme above all powers because he created them. This is one element of the oneness of God. He is the one that contains all existence and therefore controls all powers. So what does God's oneness mean to us? So when we speak of God, we must realize that in no way, shape or form, we can describe him. We don't have the tools or the minds to even begin the process. God is God and we are mere mortals. God is incomparable, indescribable and truly inscrutable. Ultimately, we cannot relate to totally spiritual beings such as God and angels because of our physical and spiritual limitations. So one thing is for sure, whether whenever God appears to us in this world as a punishing force, we cannot conclude that God is arbitrary or unfair to his subjects. So when we experience God's goodness, we cannot surmise that God is perpetually compassionate and loving. God manifests both justice and mercy simultaneously because he is one and his oneness reflects even seemingly opposing characteristics. So in our Shema recitation, we declare that God is one. He is the king of the universe who judges his creations as well as our father in heaven who is compassionate to his children. Our God is both strong and awesome. At the same time, he is loving and merciful. He is our one God. And while we acknowledge that God demonstrates diverse attributes, we believe he is the only God. And that's why we assert in the Shema that our God is the only one and only. And during the apocalyptic period, all nations will come to recognize the one God and affirm that he alone rules the world. The prophet Zechariah proclaims, and God shall become king over all the earth. And on that day, God shall be one and his name one. And what does Zechariah mean? Surely Jews have always asserted that God's name is one. Consider this. While Jews have always believed that God is the one and only deity, the nations of the world have not. And they have believed in other gods. They have worshipped idols, animals, and more. Our hope and vision for this future era of spiritual unity is expressed in the prayers of the days of awe. And so, instill your awe upon all your works and all that you have created. Let all your works revere you and all creation, uh, creatures bow down before you. Let all become a single society to do your will wholeheartedly. For as we know, our God, the dominion is yours and might is in your hand. And your name inspires awe over all that you have created. So when this transformation takes place, when all the residents of the earth recognize the one God, then truly on that day, God will be recognized as the one God with one name. And so now, blessed is his name whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. So here, the Ramban cites the words of the Talmud that after one completes the first verse beginning Shema Israel, and he recites silently the blessed is his name whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever, why do we recite this verse? It's a Masora, a tradition among our people that when Yaakov gathered his sons at the time of his death, he commanded them and exhorted them on the oneness of God and on the path of his fathers. Yaakov asked them, is there anyone among you who do not believe with me in the oneness of God? And they all answered him unanimously. Listen, Israel, my master, our God, is our one and only master. And Yaakov then answered, Blessed is his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. And so the Rambam cited this Midrash to illustrate a halacha, 
a practice which ordinarily he does not do. The Midrash is not meant to explain the Halacha, but the Rambam intends to teach the essence of accepting God's divine authority. He maintains that it is proper to connect the practice of accepting the authority of heaven in the manner that the tribes of Israel did. And then we go where it says, and you shall love my master, your God. So in the opening verses of the Shema, we declare God's sovereignty and unity in plural form. But in our personal declaration of our, God, our love of God, we must express ourselves in the singular. Loving God is not just about a feeling for 